Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Conservationist Podcast. The sun was bright orange, like a glowing tangerine. And it was orange and brilliant and almost hot to touch looking. And it was from the forest fires that were burning far to the north in the boreal boreal forest. This bright orange sun was sinking below the horizon on a forest that's made up of black spruce, tamarack, aspen, cottonwood, and thousands of other plants with a great amount of diversity. And that big, bright, orange sun in the forest fire haze was sinking every second farther and farther below the horizon of the boreal forest. And it almost looked like a hot ball of glass sinking into a cold alpine lake. Right at that moment, a family of caribou was just coming out of the forest edge. And they were coming out to a slight opening in the forest which was actually a seismic line. It was cut there years ago by a crew exploring for natural gas in the caribou's home range. There was only three caribou. There was the matriarch cow. She's been here thousands of times. She knows this land inside and out. With her was her daughter and her granddaughter. They are a herd of three healthy caribou but once they were a herd of a hundred and they were a herd among hundreds of herds roaming in the boreal landscape of Northern Canada. In this warm summer, smoky, hazy evening, the calf was carefree. Uh, It was grazing and browsing along the edge of the seismic line like its mother and grandmother had taught her. The mother was doing a little bit of feeding but she was lifting her head a lot, watching for danger. That's her job. The matriarch grandmother, she knows even better. She knows to do more than just watch. She knows to listen. By this time, 
that flaming orange tangerine sun in the smoky sky was gone. The sky was now purple and indigo and blues and white clouds. And the smoke haze was now really thick, like a marine fog settling over the boreal forest. The calf continued to happily feed. And the matriarch, she turns and she stares down the seismic line, down that long linear corridor where they came from just moments earlier. And she listens. And her attention is even more laser focused. Then she hears it. From the direction that the three caribou just came, the evening silence in the boreal forest is awakened by the howl of a wolf. Hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Get the perfect off-road truck to take your adventures to the next level with Alpine Toyota. They're proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back to our community and supporting conservation with us here at Blood Origins Canada. With Alpine Toyota, you can drive away with both a great vehicle and the peace of mind knowing you are making a difference. So, as always, thanks to Alpine Toyota for their continuing support of what we do here. Thanks, Curtis. So did that little story resonate with you both? Like, did you kind of picture a hot summer smoky evening in the boreal forest? I guess the only thing I would have left out was probably the the black flies. <laughs> Hopefully that was something yeah. that brought back some, some memories for you. So yeah, for sure. We were on, the summer was quite smoky. Was it, it was it was like this, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, joining us on the podcast tonight uh, are a couple people that know a lot about this story. Um, they work in this very environment with these very animals. Uh, Melanie Dickey, welcome to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So Melanie is a caribou ecologist. Uh, you're working with the Alberta Biodiversity Institute, and you're also a PhD candidate at the UBC Okanagan campus, which has been evacuated <laughs> uh, within the last couple of days. So I'm glad, glad you're not there. Or, or were you? Or were you up in Edmonton? I'm two places. So I'm based out of Cochrane, Alberta. So I'm watching from afar and just keeping my eye on it. Oh, good, good. Okay. Well, um, glad, glad you're not there. Cause I would have made it very, very difficult to do this episode tonight if you had been evacuated. Uh, also joining us on the show is, uh, Jesse Tigner. Welcome to the Hunter Conservationist podcast, Jesse. Thank you very much. So Jesse is an applied ecologist. Uh, you're also from Southern Alberta, not too far from where where we are based in uh, in the East Kootenai of BC. Uh, and um, you 
do a lot of or or where you're tying into this theme here is a lot of on the ground work in this exact type of habitat that i described in that in that first story so we're uh, really looking forward to i guess having this kind of the practitioner on the ground perspective and a scientist as well uh, on caribou ecology now we have covered this topic of Canada's endangered caribou in northern Alberta and northeastern British Columbia a lot on this show, as well as on the Round Canada podcast and even some of the talking heads that I've done to address some of the misinformation out there about uh, particularly British Columbia's uh, caribou recovery program and the wolf control component of that program and we started off this podcast five years ago uh, episode number two was with dr rob soroya uh, up in revelstoke it, he had been doing a lot of work on caribou recovery in the north revelstoke area as well as throughout northeastern bc and northwestern alberta he had recently um, authored a paper with a number of colleagues looking at the effectiveness of all the different types of actions that can be taken to recover endangered caribou. Uh, then we've had Mateen Hassami, um, probably part of your cohort, Melanie, from UBC Okanagan. Uh, a few years ago, we had Mateen on the show who had done his master's thesis on moose and moose hunting as a management tool to reduce the density of moose in the North Revelstoke Valley, where there's endangered caribou living there, as a way to reduce wolf populations, was to reduce the moose population or the density of moose to make life harder for wolves, which would then give the caribou a break. And then we did that podcast with Mateen. Uh, among all the shows that we've had Dr. Clayton Lamb on, uh, we did a show uh, about a year and a half ago, I think, with Clayton on the, his work in the recovery of the Clenziza herd in northeastern BC and the maternal penning project that the West Moberly and Soto First Nations are leading that recovery program. And Clayton was there doing um, capture work and um, also monitoring the uh, uh, the herds and the growth of the herds from the maternal penning project. So this is a piece of this caribou, wolf, boreal forest, human disturbance story that we have not actually really dived into that much. And it's the habitat piece. It's the restoration of human disturbance, the human footprint on the caribou's habitat. Uh, and the relationship to wolf predation because of that. So, Melanie, I want to turn this over to you and maybe paint the picture for folks of this relationship between the linear features that you've studied, what are linear features, uh, and how wolves are using those and interacting with moose and interacting with caribou and how that is or isn't helping <laughs> caribou recovery. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when humans need to get around the forest, we often create roads or other trails to do that. I mean, we're not going to bushwhack if we have other options. 
Roads are quite common, as we know, everybody's quite familiar with them. But there's also a vast network of what are called seismic lines through the boreal forests of Western Canada in particular. These seismic lines are long, straight trails in the neighborhood of about six to 10 meters wide. And they're cut through the forest so machinery can go through the forest and look for oil and gas reserves underground. And just like humans, just like the caribou in your story, wolves use these linear features to get around. And when they do, they move two to three times faster than they otherwise would in surrounding undisturbed forest. They also are more likely to go into caribou habitat, traveling from upland ridges down into peatlands and muskeg where you would rarely see them otherwise. So when wolves move more, they can encounter more prey which is suspected to increase their kill rates of species like moose, deer, and caribou. And in particular, they can bump into more caribou when they're using caribou habitat more often. Now, what makes this situation even worse is that when wolves have this easier access to their prey, they're able to make their living in a smaller area. So, they can contract their territories. And when territories are small, more and more territories can fit into a given space, which means not only are those wolves more efficient because they're using these seismic lines or other linear features cut through the forest, they're using caribou habitat more often, but there are also more of them out there, which overall, this breaks down the anti-predator strategy that caribou have historically used to survive. They live in habitats that are difficult for other species to thrive in and keep out of the way of predators, but that's becoming increasingly difficult to do because of these linear features, as well as higher densities of other ungulates out there keeping wolf densities high. That's fascinating. Um, now, so the the caribou are, are living in this environment. The wolves are kind of so. Actually, I just want to back up a little bit and paint the picture for people. So I've been up there. I've flown a lot. Worked up there. Jesse has as well. The boreal forest is relatively flat it's uh in northeastern bc in northern alberta it's what they call the alberta plateau um, so it is relatively flat uh hummocky rolling ground small hills and stuff so no big mountain ranges rockies to the left and up into the yukon northwest territories a little farther the, the mountains and just boreal forest as far as the eye can see like literally like even in a helicopter you're just boreal forest going over the curvature of the earth like it's just that vast that landscape up there and specifically there was logging up there so there was roads but the seismic lines that Melanie was talking about is the way that the oil and gas companies go in and do um, basically like ground vibrations that bounce off the bedrock and stuff and they look for different formations and map where where the gas deposits are well that those seismic lines were cut onto this vast landscape. Like I almost call them like the, 
the Nazca lines down in Peru. Like they're just these dead straight lines is just going for like hundreds of kilometers. You see them go over the curvature of the earth and they're just crisscrossing in every different direction. They were, they were like, you know, well, well, let's do testing over here and then a little bit over here and more here. And it's just, it's a haphazard crisscrossed up landscape of these, these seismic lines. And it's almost like the landscape is gridded. So the wolves can actually like, you know, go down the street, turn a left, turn a right, you know, and, and they, they can almost sort of like you're a tactical team searching a, a city block or something like that, you know, that's, that's been quadranted down. So it's extensive. That human impact up there is extensive, these seismic lines. So when you said that they can travel two to three times faster on these seismic lines while they're hunting. The wolves can. Is is it? Is that mean that they're actually physically like running along faster, um, or that they're actually like covering more ground, like looking for prey in a given hour or a day, or is it? I guess it, maybe it's a function of both. Yeah, it's definitely a function of both. So they're able to move much quicker in any given kind of step in the short term. But we did find that it translates to more area covered in a day. So it's that really fine scale movement of they can really skedaddle, skedaddle and get through areas really, really quickly. But they're also just generally covering more ground. And that's really the important part because they're a cursorial predator. They rely on finding prey, encountering prey, encountering their scent trails through the forest. That's really how they make their living. Whereas like a species like a cougar will, will stalk their prey and, and catch them that way. Wolves really rely on covering lots of ground and seismic lines and other linear features have made that a whole lot easier for them. Now, in, in the story, I talked about like the caribou coming out to the edge of the seismic line. So they're, they're, they're generally force dependent animals spending most of their time in, in the boreal forest. Now, what, what is your experience about this concept that the caribou don't like roads, they don't like linear features, they don't like gas lines where they, they don't actually even come out on them or they won't even cross over them? Is that really a real thing with caribou? Like they literally just stop and then turn around and walk away from a seismic line or are they also using it as well? They'll definitely still use them. So what we see is that caribou and moose as well will use these features. They will browse on them, but they tend to avoid them. So they generally don't really want to be there, but they'll use them to move quickly from point A to point B. And we've also seen some cases where they might perceive it as actually kind of a, a safeguard where if it's a really heavily used feature by humans, sometimes they'll just go into a road right of way and graze on that right of way for a while, knowing that they're relatively protected from wolves that will avoid the more busy roads. But there's actually a little bit of debate in the literature, which is always fun, uh, about whether or not caribou 
are really perceiving these features to be risky because of wolves or if they'll use them sometimes as forage. More often than not, the evidence suggests they're perceiving them to be risky, but we'll use them sometimes quickly. Okay. No, that's, that's interesting. So a little bit of truth, maybe a little bit of artistic uh, <laughs> license there in my story about well, the caribou coming out along the, along the seismic line. So if the caribou are kind of avoiding them and, and it's not like preferred habitat, then if the wolves are traveling, then the wolves are not actually most of the time finding the caribou on the seismic lines. Like how, how is that making their hunting more efficient if the wolves are using the seismic lines, but somewhere out in the dense forest is where the caribou are still hanging out? Is it like they're smelling them, like covering the ground and trying to catch their scent, and then they go into the, the thicket to go in and hunt them? Or how to uh, explain how that actually works? bump into them on the seismic line and actively chase them on the seismic line. I'm sure it happens sometimes. We think more it's that it's increasing the wolf's use of that peatland muskeg that caribou use to avoid predators more generally. And it's also probably that when caribou do inherently bump into these seismic lines and have to cross them, or have to use them for a short period of time that they're leaving that scent trail behind and that's being encountered by the wolves and followed. It's also that if these linear features are increasing the hunting efficiency of other species like moose and white-tailed deer, they're gonna increase their reproductive output and there's gonna be an increase in wolf densities as well. So it's not just that it's increasing their efficiency on caribou per se, it's increasing their efficiency overall, which is never a good story for caribou. Right, okay. Because the the prevailing knowledge here, as I understand it, like the caribou are endangered, so there's not that many of them. So to make a living hunting an endangered species is not the best of life choices if you're a wolf. But if this landscape is harboring uh, better moose populations, the seismic lines in the roads are allowing white-tailed deer to expand out of the agriculture areas into the, into the boreal forest, then wolves are doing well because there's more prey species. And then, oh, look, there's a couple bumbling caribou and they, what, they don't call it opportunistic. What is it? It's like a bycatch, caribou or bycatch of wolves when they're hunting moose or, or, or deer, if I remember, is that the right word? Yeah, that's right. So I like to, I mean, morbidly, I guess, think about it as caribou are the, the French fries on the side. <laughs> it's not what you're making your living on, but you're not gonna turn it down either. Yeah, everybody um, likes French so fries. It's, right. It's termed a parent competition where you have higher populations of moose and deer, you see caribou doing uh, worse. And it looks like it's because caribou are competing with moose, maybe for food, but it's actually through the shared predator. So where you have more moose and deer, you have more predators and less caribou, and it creates this apparent competition between caribou and the other ungulate species. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um... 
Now, you had done some work a couple of years ago, if I recall, that was sort of showing that in this landscape, like not all things are like great habitat for moose and caribou. So they, there's areas where moose tend to be and then the caribou aren't there. And then there's areas where the caribou tend to be and the moose don't like to be there. Was that, is that kind of a correct interpretation? Yeah, less. So caribou really do like to be in this nutrient poor habitat where it's peatland and muskeg and no other species can really make a good living there. They have special uh, adaptations to recycle their urea an extra time, which allows them to squeeze every little bit of protein out of lichen, for example. So they like to live in these, these poor habitats, whereas moose tend to really like to live in kind of more upland, deciduous, lots of forage availability. They'll go down into wetlands to get salt, for example. Um, but there's kind of this separation between caribou and moose and deer. And linear features are breaking that down cut blocks and wildfires we think are increasing the amount of forage available for moose and deer, which means that there's more of them on that landscape. And then we also have this twist of climate change, which is decreasing winter severity over time and supporting higher densities of white-tailed deer in addition to that change in habitat. So it's really like this triple whammy against caribou, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Now lead us a little bit from that, um, that picture that you painted of the relationship between the seismic lines and the wolf traveling and their ability to find, you know, these caribou that are less abundant on the landscape or lower densities with what should be done with the habitat to make life better for caribou so more of them survive so more of those little carefree calves that <laughs> was in the story there um make it through to adult adulthood sure so to solve this particular part of the problem there are a few options that are not mutually exclusive the closest to the problem of too many caribou being predated is of course to remove the predators themselves. And you've talked about that in previous podcasts. But to get to the root of the issue, we have to take away that movement advantage that we've given to the wolves and address what is keeping densities of other prey species on the landscape high. So when it comes to wolf movement, what we really wanna do is rough up these seismic lines kick wolves off of them so they're no longer really um, kind of advantage for them to use, slow wolves down when they do use them. And then the goal is to eventually have return to forest cover. We want to essentially restore these features so that they are now back to the kind of habitat that used to be there. But because we know that's going to take decades just for trees that we plant now to regrow. We're going to want to do some short-term things in the meantime, create some mounds, some big kind of holes in the in the forest or in the ground 
and invert them to get the trees growing on those mounds, but also to create these barriers to wolf movement. So they're not as attractive for them. And even if they were to use them, they at least wouldn't be traveling fast anymore. Gotcha. And then it, then it becomes a game of, of like risk reduction. You're, you're making the, the landscape less favorable and it's reducing the risk that these wolf herds can find a caribou every X number of days. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to make the wolf's life a little bit little harder, harder. <laughs> because we've made it so easy for so long. Yeah. Um, which, you know, this, the, I love talking about this, love learning about this. Cause I think there's a tremendous amount of people out there as you're both well aware, the whole idea of reducing the density of wolves, um, by lethal removal is not sitting very well with, with a lot of people. Uh, it is playing uh, a positive role for caribou, but it is not overly, uh, popular in, in society. That's for sure. Now, now this is where Jesse comes in with his excavator and everybody wants to be on an excavator. I don't know if Jesse gets to drive them and play with them or just direct his operators. But, um, so fill us in now, um, Jesse, maybe, maybe take us right back to like how you got involved in the on the ground restoration work uh, of these features that uh, Melanie's been talking about and, and implementing, you know, essentially the recommendations from her research. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I, I actually worked in seismic for about a decade. Um, well, now there's a good business model. Go out and make them, yeah. and then and then when everybody's like, "Oh my God, look at these guys made so many seismic lines," <laughs> and you're like, "Hey, I got this business over here that that restores them." Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty funny how the how the world turns there. Um, yeah, so I I actually I got into it sort of uh, on the BC side of things. Um, I did. Uh, in in the seismic days, I did a lot of um, heliportable exploration in in frontier basins. So when when the price of of uh, oil and gas was very high, um, you know, a few cycles ago, and people were wanting to go into more and more remote areas, um, I, I was working for a company that was doing a lot of that work, uh, and some of that work was in Northeast BC. So I worked quite a bit with. Um, the Fort Nelson First Nation. And then when I transitioned out of that, um, the seismic life and, and kind of came back more to the, um, the ecological and wildlife ecology side of things, I, I uh, started working on the restoration side of things with, with FNFN as well. Um, and, you know, it's, I guess, kind of going from Going from the science to the practice is uh, as complex, I think, as as figuring out all the science stuff, um, just in 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 really different ways. So the the sort of conversation that was happening before about the the sort of size, the kinds of seismic lines, and um, and and you're bang on there, Mark. Like you know, a lot of those lines, um, 
you you see across the curvature of the earth and and it's a it looks sort of like a game of pickup sticks and they're all over the place um, a lot of those lines uh, are are sort of from the older days so um, across kind of northern northern Canada um, the the sort of boreal northwards a lot of those lines date back to like the 50s um, and and many of those lines have a very difficult time um, recovering and they they persist as those sort of sidewalks for wolves to to make a mile um, because the way that they're created um, really kicked the natural successional trajectories off off kilter so uh, a sort of phrase so they, that you hear a lot were they building them more like like a bulldozer put the blade down to dirt and like were they building that's more exactly like roads right. yeah so a phrase that you hear a lot from from old timers is is ripping the carpet off the top so um they would purposefully dig blades way down into the into the moss layer uh with the express purpose of of building roads and a lot of those old lines were were meant for um two pickup trucks to be able to travel and pass each other at like about 20 clicks very wide um and oh. and the the flow there from a restoration perspective or from a recovery perspective is there isn't a lot of recovery um so in those in those peatland forest types um there's lots of complexities with with hydrological cycles uh with with germination needs of, of black spruce and tamarack and the the sort of on the on the regrowing forest front uh restoration is really all about sort of realigning those successional pathways so that you you're sort of reintroducing those building blocks that are needed for say black spruce to germinate and to grow into seedlings and then recruit into mature trees and and actually become you know healthy live adult trees and, and reforest the system okay <clears throat> so is this correct like those old lines that were built where they scrape all the vegetation and the moss and everything down to mineral soil not the greatest place for a plant to grow they spent the last 50 60 75 years naturally not growing back over very rapidly because they were they were stripped down to bare mineral soil like you know sometimes nature will just sort of like regrow a little opening uh like quite quickly but is is that the case here that nature just couldn't regrow over these things very quickly for natural restoration um yeah i mean i think part of the complexity of of the whole kind of caribou wolf story and part of the complexity of of restoration itself is that there are millions of kilometers of, of seismic line across uh northwest canada and they exploration um uh has been ongoing for you know at this point just about 100 years in this region and many lines are reopened sometimes dozens of times by subsequent waves of exploration um, there's all kinds of different exploration practices like lines can be created in different ways so it's it's very difficult to get a handle on even like average recovery time. The average recovery time for a line 
put in in, in the 60s and 70s is, is likely vastly different from the average recovery time of a lime that was put in this past winter, for example. But all of that said, the sort of poster child for, um, you know, lines persisting in an unforested state. Um, I, I just as a little quirk, I hate the that they don't recover idea because they are recovering. They're just recovering to something that's not forested. Um, and a yeah, lot like of lichens those old and mosses lines, and yeah. Yeah, especially a lot of those old lines in, in the sort of northern boreal and southern taiga sort of transition into um, like linear wetlands that are dominated by carracks and, and um, they're, they're really just wholly different habitat types within these otherwise forested peatlands. Strips, you know? strips so that's of wetlands, the sort of, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of classic poster child of a line that was put in in the 50s and it's all big, beautiful bush all around it. And then it's like a little wetland with willets and frogs and dragonflies and all that kind of stuff. So is that type of feature still pretty easy for the wolves to travel along? Like they're probably not in knee deep water, but maybe just ankle deep kind of sloshy wet. Is that more what it's like? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think I, Mel can sort of speak to this maybe a little bit more, but like, I, I think one of the big drivers, like from an energetics perspective is, is like you were saying at the very beginning there, Mark, the, the forest is naturally hummocky and it's hard to move quickly. There's all kinds of little mounds and pits and stuff in the way. And a lot of even, you know, sort of newer style lines, they're, they're flattening all of that stuff. So they're compressing the surface, they're making it harder, they're making it easier to walk. Each step requires less energy. There's less stuff to get in the way and you really can just bugaloo. The, uh, the, the picture I'd like to have people um, imagine like the, this landscape that we're, that we're talking about here. Remember in the Lord of the Rings where they had to go through that big, what was it called? The something marshes. And, um, there was those, uh, the, the, the soldiers that had died there in a battle before and they were under the water, but they were still alive. And remember Frodo was like, got hypnotized and was going to fall, fall into the water. But it was like this, this like little pockets of water and these hummocks and they're trying to make their way across this huge network of like going from dry hummock to dry hummock and stuff. And, and that's, so that's the natural landscape. Whereas if you kind of put like a nice clear road or trail through it, then Frodo and Sam could have just zipped through there a lot quicker. So I don't know if anybody's a big Lord of the Rings fan. They remember that scene, but that kind of reminds me uh, a little bit of the landscape these that you're working in. Yep. That's pretty much it. Exactly. <laughs> now did they, so you, you kind of talked about like seismic lines that were built like in the old days. Um, and are did they change their practices? Did they start to go like, Hey, this is a really intensive way to do it. And did they start building like less intensive seismic lines or smaller or fewer of them? Like what, what did the industry do differently? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating history or it, it's a fascinating history to me at least, um, coming sort of from that seismic background, but, um, for all intent and purpose, yes. 
um, in the early days, there was there was nothing around, especially in in the far north. So um, folks were for were building these lines sort of for dual purpose. One was to conduct exploration, and the other was to drag camps and all that kind of stuff behind them. So there was somewhere to stay when when work crews were out in the bush. Um, as as you know, Western uh, Canada became largely more roaded, or at least south of 60. Um, uh, in Alberta and BC, became more roaded. There was less of a need for that. So um, crews were able to go a little bit more quickly. Um, as a result, lines were a bit rougher. Um, they didn't need to carry the same kinds of equipment behind them. Um, and that, that sort of trajectory um, continued, um, continued on through like the 90s where uh, lines became even narrower again in the sort of five meter width uh, and people started to do some kind of variable cutting techniques where lines were getting a bit windier and then by like around the, the mid 2000s um, the industry pretty much wholesale switched over to mulching lines so um, basically putting like a little rotating drum on the front of a, a little buggy um, and instead of digging blades into the into the muskeg uh, we're sort of grinding vegetation above the surface of the muskeg to kind of keep that peat layer uh, a bit more intact um, and lines also became a bit narrower so currently lines are around two meters and or three meters depending on exactly how they're used um, so it, it's been over the last 80 years or so, it's been quite a transition. Okay. Like well, I got another movie metaphor so people can picture that newer technique and remember Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull, had <laughs> the big things going through, just kind of mowing a swath through the forest, kind of like that, but on a much smaller, smaller scale. Yeah, that's right. So now Jesse, so let's, let's paint the picture for us what you do on the ground. Mel's gone like, Hey, Jesse, there's these areas and this, these are some things I think should be done to slow these walls up. And now you've got to take equipment and crews and try to try to do some sort of restoration on the ground that would one slow the walls up in the short term, but then I would gather accelerate the ability of nature to grow that feature over like, like more quickly. So Paint paint the picture. What does a day day in your your job look like of going out and restoring some seismic lines? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, um, and it's a it, it can be sort of a, a convoluted answer. So if we if we are are sort of wholly focused on on just caribou and and we're thinking about sort of a, a functional restoration of of the habitat. Um, meaning sort of what you were saying there, slowing the wolf movement, making lines less, um, less, um, uh, less likely to be used or if used, used more slowly, all of that kind of stuff. Um, the idea is to, um, as quickly as possible, uh, sort of do both of those things at once. So, so what I mean by that is, is, deliver uh, an immediate um, 
deliver an immediate uh, behavioral change for wolves to sort of introduce something that's trickier to navigate while also helping to sort of realign um, those, those um, successional kind of expectations so that we can uh, better and more quickly and more successfully regrow forests. So um, the, the delivery of, of that uh, can vary quite a bit depending on, on specifically what, what habitat types you're in. So um, if, you're, if you're working in a, a forested peatland, uh, you're in either a bog system or a fen system. Um, on, on the one hand, both are fairly similar. On the other hand, they're very different and, and respond often very differently to disturbance and, and subsequent tinkering of, of those disturbances. Um, and then when you sort of that, the, the picture that you painted at the beginning of, of sort of talking about the muskeg and some of the upland things, upland in inclusions, um, when you get into some of those upland stands, stands that have mineral soil and support aspen and, and white spruce or, or sometimes pine, you sort of get a whole bunch of different things that you need to be thinking about and a whole bunch of different ways that you need to tinker with the system to, to do both of those things, i.e. Um, affect wolf behavior in the short term and set the forest up for success to, to regrow in the long term. So my sort of personal interest, um, a lot of the stuff that I've done in, in British Columbia and a lot of the stuff that I've done in Alberta has really been in focused on how can we most efficiently tinker um, in any given caribou, boreal caribou range in, in Canada, we've got hundreds of thousands of line, uh, kilometers of seismic line that we need to treat getting to each and every one of those meters is very difficult. As soon as you get off the road, you're dealing with all kinds of different challenges um, in terms of getting equipment through, uh, in terms of, of, you know, kind of keeping people safe, in terms of being able to deliver the implementation um, quickly, in terms of being able to ensure that whatever you're doing is effectively um, addressing those ecological sort of challenges that, that you have. Um, so I really like to sort of see what we can do to expedite that process. Um, and I, you know, I, I think all of this is in its nascency right now in terms of actually implementing stuff. There are a handful of companies and groups, um, some different oil companies, uh, especially in Alberta and some different First Nation groups, especially in BC that are sort of all kind of attacking this problem and learning and figuring out kind of what to do. Um, on, on the BC side of things, we're doing a lot of um, uh, hummock transfer. Um, so that's developed out of uh, uh, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology at the, the Peace River campus. Uh, and it's basically scraping a whole hummock that is supporting a, a live mature black spruce from next to one of these lines and plunking it down on the line. And the idea there is that we're sort of, we're transplanting all of the ecological parts and processes at the same time. So we don't need to create a giant mound and then plant a tree into that mound. We're sort of just transplanting a naturally formed hummock um, and, and a tree that's already a meter or two meters tall. Um, and a lot of the work that I'm doing in Alberta um, is, is trying to figure out like, okay, 
the, the standard flow here is about a kilometer per day uh, of implementing restoration for one machine. How can we bump that up to like 10 or 20 kilometers a day? Because we simply don't have the time or the person power or the money to, to tinker away at, at 1K a day per machine. So Right. So it's kind of, um, so the machine you're talking about, like as an excavator, right? So it's, it's, it kind of sounds like you're, you're, you're sort of selectively grabbing some stuff from the natural forest on each side of it and plunking it down on, on the seismic line. And I, anybody that's maybe went and bought a tree at Home Depot or something and, and you, you come home and plant it, like you imagine, like if you just took it out of the pot and plunked it on top of the lawn, it's, it's going to die. Um, you know, you got to dig a hole and stick it down, but this is a different ecosystem, right? Like you're talking about trees that grow on the hummock. So if you move the hummock and the tree onto the seismic line, one, it creates a barrier, but that's how that tree naturally grows anyways. So you're not digging holes and sticking trees and shrubs in the ground. Is that kind of what you're trying to explain the picture you're painting for us? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit of both. So, so in trying to figure out how we can go as quickly as possible, we're, we're trying to figure out how little we need to do. Um, and, and I oh, think I gotcha. we're, we're, we're trying that at a couple of scales. How little do we need to do to convince a wolf that it's not, it's not worth using this segment of line? Um, how, how little restoration do we have to deliver um, how short of a segment do we need to deliver all of that stuff on? And then on the, on the sort of vegetation side, um, we're trying to figure out like on a, in, in that example of, of transplanting a hummock, how little do we have to do for the hummock to be successful? So, so some of the work specifically in BC that, that, um, we've been doing is okay. Let's take a hummock and literally just plunk it on the ground and see what happens. Now let's fluff up a little area and kind of rough up the, the surface of, of the line and the moss that has, has kind of regrown on that, on that line footprint and plunk uh, a hummock into that roughed up area. Which one does better? Let's take bigger trees. Let's take smaller trees. Let's take bigger hummocks. Let's take smaller hummocks. How do all of those things um, and contribute to the success or the failure of our, of our restoration efforts. So you're, you're really in kind of that early stages of, of a new form of land management where you're kind of experimenting a little bit to see what works to find the groove of both cost effectiveness effectiveness for your, your slowing the wolves down and, and, doing something that is is quick and covering ground and and so you're having to do a lot of little tests and trials and and that sort of thing by the sounds of it yeah that's right and i think you know it's a it's a very uh exciting time for for restoration because um everybody is sort of in that boat right now like everybody mm -hmm. that is is out there doing that work is 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 sort of trying to to walk and chew gum at the same time meaning <laughs> right. we know Adaptive that we management, need them. applied it, science it's exactly yeah. right yeah 
and and we know that we have a ton of of line to restore so we need to go out and we need to do it but we also need to be doing that purposefully and we need to be cognizant of of monitoring and following up and jotting down some notes about what we're doing and figuring out what works best and what doesn't um you know i think the the groups that have been doing this the longest are not even yet 10 years into this game um and every every year every month every quarter there's there's sort of new entrance into this space so we're we're likely you know a couple decades away from being in a in a groove across the board where we're able to really start implementing thousands of kilometers of, of restoration a year um, that's also successful um, mm -hmm. but i you know we're, we're getting there very quickly um, in terms of of lots of lots of boots on the ground so that's it's super exciting no it sure sounds like it yeah yeah restoration is cool that's a really feel good activity on the landscape especially when you go back in a year or two or whatever and just kind of see like nature really thriving on on what you created you know on the ground for it it just sort of like wow this is awesome and stuff just takes off and grows and fills in melanie were, yeah it's oh sorry go ahead oh no i was just gonna ask melanie were you involved in i believe there was some trials years ago where they were just taking that bright orange snow fencing like you would see uh, at the ski hill and the bamboo sticks and then just kind of like literally were they just putting those like fences across the seismic lines at different intervals and then studying the response of wolves traveling down the lines with with those things was that work that you were involved in or were others doing that or what do you know about that i was involved in it peripherally it was done in kind of a pilot project, not at any sort of large area. Um, the concern there is it really is short term and it's not going to last forever. And it's certainly not going to recover the trees and return to forest cover. So we've kind of overall as a group, if you will, moved on from that idea a little bit. It's it can be helpful to create barriers of sorts, think of fences at um, high use intersections. Uh, but overall, we've really moved on to the kind of restoration that Jesse's been talking about. The kicker to all of this is we don't yet really know how to grow trees back well. We're tinkering, as Jesse said, and I liked and learning a lot and a lot fast, but we don't have a good handle on it yet. And we don't know at all if it's going to actually help recover caribou in any sort of timeline that we need it to. Um, so a lot of this is certainly an adaptive management learning experience. And we're kind of in the position where we need to throw every tool we have at the problem and I think that's where fences kind of can come in a little bit, as well as other restoration treatments and even other population management levers. Yeah. Okay. Did you, did they glean anything from that work with the snow fencing 
and and what I'm trying to think here in my mind is, so there's this long seismic line, wolves are traveling along, and then all of a sudden, bang, there's a barrier across a fence. They're obviously probably going to go around the end of it, just like duck through the forest and eventually get a path beaten around there. We've all seen that in the bush when there's a beautiful game trail and then the wind blows a tree across it and the, and the elk or whatever go around the end and beat like a new path around the end of it. And then, and then it doesn't even slow them down when they're, when they're traveling on that. So did you learn anything about that that went, if these like barriers, whether they're a fence or whatever you happen to build out there, kind of an optimum distance where one, if they're spaced every 200 yards, the wolves are like, ah, it's not even, doesn't even slow us down. If they're every hundred or 50 or like, was there anything like that? Just to... Um, not to my knowledge with the fences per se. I mean, that's exactly the concern, right? You just go around. So you need a fence every 50 meters. They have to go around, go around. And that's how you slow them down. Um, but I don't think that that level of effort given like the cost benefit ratio there is off. <laughs> I don't know that we did it at a scale or that it has been done at a scale that was large enough to be able to test those kinds of things. There have been some uh, tests of restoration effectiveness coming out of Northeastern Alberta that I was involved in, but that was more sort of the kinds of restoration that Jesse was talking about. Okay. I think part of the other, the, the other issue there, I'm gonna just sort of glom onto Mel's comment is the, the notion that you know, wolves are, are using an individual feature to travel many, many, many kilometers isn't, isn't exactly what, what's happening, at least not across the board. So when, when you look at an old road, um, oftentimes there will be like a relative to, to um, like GPS collar relocations. Oftentimes they'll use a, a road um, for, for a very long distance, but on an individual seismic line, it's often just a little snippet. So it, it becomes exceptionally tricky because you're, when you're implementing the restoration, you are on a line, but you need to be thinking about a much broader area at the same time, because you're trying to, you, when you have, you know, hundreds of lines in a given space, turning one long one off isn't really going to do that much. You need to, to try to be more purposeful to sort of turn off these chunks of area at once. And, you know, I think something that's probably coming in, in the pipeline, so to speak, for restoration is figuring out like, okay, here's a bigger landscape. Here's the current recovery, the current natural recovery state of all of the features within this area. We need to go and hit these areas that aren't restored, that aren't naturally recovered, that we think wolves are able to sort of link in space along a broader travel route to be able to shut that area off for easy use by wolves. Oh, so it, it's sort of another layer of complexity there. So rather than just like you start at the beginning and completely restore a hundred kilometers of line, you're talking more about like, look at a big landscape and it's just like, uh, uh, high grading the area and some restoration, a patch there, a chunk there, a piece here, there, that, you know, and, and then 
you know, then you, you, you get hundreds of hectares of the boreal forest is kind of like treated as opposed to, uh, hundreds of kilometers of line from beginning to end. Absolutely. Yeah. I think from, from that practitioner perspective, uh, we're, we're definitely starting to move away from how many, how many kilometers did you get this summer, winter, and, and much more into the, what was the patch size that you were able to effectively restore lines, polygons, and otherwise. So is anybody using like, like GPS collars on the walls to kind of glean that on the landscape where they're sort of like, Hey, you know what, this seismic line number 704 over here, boy, they sure like to come down this ridge, run up the seismic line for like 500 yards and then cut back off into the forest. Like, and then like, well, let's go screw that chunk up for them. Cause the data is telling us that that's like a favorite little, little spot for them. Is there any of that going on to help you guys? Yeah, I think that is a question for Mel. I, I don't, I don't, it would be amazing, but um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the problem with that is, as Jesse said earlier, they're kind of using a little bit of everything. Okay. So there are a few favorite routes where you might be able to disrupt them a little bit but nothing's stopping them from just going 50 meters over to the next line. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause they are parallel crisscrossing. Um, I don't know some of the big international airports that you fly into, you wonder like why they got so many of these runways that are all like crisscrossing, you know, like, like a compass or whatever. And that's kind of what some of these seismic lines look like. So you pick one of them and do something. There's five more right, right beside you. Jesse, when you're out there working, you know, in the, I assume probably you're, you're waiting to go in to do some of this restoration work when the ground freezes up a little bit and it's a little easier to get around on the, in these boggy areas. Are you learning anything by doing the restoration work, like seeing wolves while you're out working, seeing their tracks, um, you know, getting a, a little bit of insight as a practitioner on the ground of, of, you know, sort of, I, I guess what would anecdotal evidence that you'll call Mel up and say like, Hey, we've been seeing him do this or reacting this way or changing their behavior that way. Uh, great question. And, um, you know, I think the, First, the sort of seasonal question, um, you know, the, the push is, is very much to make things year round. So um, some of the stuff that I'm doing in Alberta is, is um, non-frozen only. Some of the stuff that I'm doing in, in BC currently is, is frozen conditions only, though in BC we, we started in the summer as well. Um, and we're, we're sort of moving back to some, some unfrozen stuff. There's some phenomenal, uh, service providers out there that have, have kitted out excavators so that they're, um, they're amphibious, like fully amphibious and can cruise around through all kinds of open water and, and skag and stuff like that. So the, our toolbox is, is, um, continually expanding. There's a couple of outfits that sort of specialize in, in um, smaller equipment that can be flown into remote sites. So there's all kinds of really neat opportunities to, to make restoration a year round flow. Um, 
in in terms of uh, in terms of winter specific things, um, the the one thing that we notice uh, just from sort of a logistics perspective, um, you know, you need to to get into an area and and sort of prep a line. So in in the old days for seismic, you would go in and you would clear the line, and then you would sometimes water it in or you would sometimes drag it to sort of build up um, the, the term is called pushing the frost into the ground to sort of build up that hard layer that can support equipment. Um, uh, there, if you use smaller excavators, you, you have a lot of um, liberty to sort of modify some of those flows, but you do still need to prep some of these old lines that, that you're targeting for restoration. Um, one thing that we see anecdotally quite a bit is we're prepping a line to restore it and then we'll see some wolf tracks on it after we make it easy after we plow <laughs> a foot and a half of snow away and pack the ground down a little bit it all of a sudden becomes a really great travel corridor so those logistics of like okay we're trying to restore this area and not allow wolves to come in uh is a bit of a balancing act there to to not um to not prep too much line ahead of yourself, um, but to prep enough that you can kind of keep the operation flowing. Um, okay, that's interesting. But yeah, yeah, yeah not yeah. not be part of the problem, part of the solution. And exactly, I think we also another person we had on the on the podcast, Curtis, was um, Dr. Jason Fisher from the University of Victoria. Um, he had his own part part owner in a whiskey distillery down on Vancouver Island and it was a um what was it it was wolves wolverines and whiskey or something like that was it was the podcast but I now you probably know maybe a little bit better like his work you know being in this field wasn't his one of the studies he did was showing that the wolves were becoming more nocturnal uh, in hunting and traveling on the lines. And I'm just trying to remember if that was in a response to the aerial control programs or if it was due to something else. I just remember him saying that they appear to be responding to something we're doing on the landscape and to becoming more nocturnal. Oh boy. I remember reading that too. And I can't remember what it was in response to. I think it was wolf reduction programs. That's what I thought um, it was. That was how they were responding to the helicopters was, mm -hmm. yeah, to lay low in the day and then hunt at night. So hmm. we were, Clever we were creatures, we were drinking his whiskey and on, on the show. So we can't remember what not. <laughs> um, I'm just joking there. So, okay. So one of the ways I want to wrap up here is you're both, you know, passionate and dedicated to this idea of recovering caribou, endangered caribou and in, in, um, in Northern Canada, um, British Columbia and Alberta specifically where, where you're both working. <clears throat> Mel, if money was unlimited for you, from a scientist perspective of building this concept of habitat restoration and linear features out, what do you want to do as a researcher to better understand what's going on here? I would really like to see a entire caribou range or caribou herd restored so that we can understand 
if it's going to work from a caribou perspective. Um, so I really do value all of the things we need to learn and how to do it more effectively and efficiently. Um, but I'd like to see that built into a program that really aims to test the scale in which we need to do this work to see success. Because we're kind of taking it as a given if we do all of this restoration, spend millions of dollars, if not billions, and many, many years, if not decades, doing this work, we will have a meaningful impact on caribou. And I hope that that's true but we don't know that it is. So, I mean, if money was no object, then I'd like to restore every feature in all of the boreal, but that's um, not quite the question. I think that restoring an entire caribou range or a caribou herd is within scope. That's something that we can do. And I think that we should strive to do that and be really smart and strategic about how we do restoration to answer whether or not this is going to work for caribou. Okay. Okay. Um, nothing like you would collaborate with like Elon Musk and have uh, drones that were the size of mosquitoes uh, that were programmed to follow every wolf and every caribou in an entire herd and collect data 365 days a year and directly feed back to a little thing on your watch that was then directing Jesse where to go out and restore lines. I mean, that would be lovely, but I'd probably <laughs> maybe pick someone other than Elon Musk. Um, well, he's got the money. I would say he does. I'm going to drop this whole Mars would... thing and help you with caribou. Yeah. I would say that I would want to inventory the entire boreal forest to see what's regrowing and learn from that. But we're doing that in Alberta and slowly making our way in BC. So it's really exciting times to understand these regeneration patterns. Okay. Because I guess that would kind of feed into what Jesse was talking about, sort of this pattern approach across the large landscape areas. If you go, hey we know those areas nature's doing a really good job uh over here if we do this treatment the response is really good and 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 you start to kind of understand what nature's doing and how you can help and where you just need to leave it alone and where you need intervention yeah that's right i mean the hope is there are some areas that are regenerating okay, and we can do a little bit to help out. We're seeing less of it than we hoped so far, but we'll see how it goes. Mm, okay. Jesse, same, same question. <clears throat> Money's unlimited, and you're, as an ecological practitioner on the ground, you're going to go out and restore the damage that's been done over the last 100 years in caribou range. What What's your wish list? What do you want to see happen? Yeah, great, great question. Great answer, Mel. Um, it, it's a tricky one. So I think from uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of cop out and give two vastly different answers. I, <laughs> no I copping out. No copping dream, dream out. Dream big. Okay, I, <laughs> I got a. Tr I got a, I, I got. I got ten billion dollars for you in your restoration program. So, well, I, what I will say right out of the gate is that's going to go pretty quick. Um, 
for, <laughs> for restoration across Western okay. Canada. Um, but I hear you. I, I think, um, yeah, I think I would, I would take a, a slightly different tact. Um, and I, I don't mean to go, I don't mean to go off topic, but, um, I think, and this is especially in British Columbia, this is, is starting to happen quite a bit more, but I, I think that, um, I think that there is a, a lot to be learned from, from kind of getting out and doing and, and sort of following that adaptive management perspective and, and sort of jumping into to what Melanie said of like, let's, let's restore a whole range. I, I think like, let's restore a whole bunch of ranges all together um, in, in one in one broad area. So instead of just one, let's focus on nine or 10 that all abut one another, because we know that, you know, the, a range boundary is, is a somewhat artificial uh, border. And we know that there's genetic exchange and, and all that across range boundaries from herds. Um, so we also know that wolves are traveling across a bunch of ranges. So these, these are very open, open boundaries, open borders. So I think that we should really focus in on a, on a broad region to do the work. And I think that, that we sort of, um, the, the part that's happening a lot more in British Columbia now, um, is I, I think a lot of it should be, uh, sort of nation directed. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for anybody else and I certainly can't speak for any, any nation. Um, but for a, a lot of first nations, caribou is, is sort of one part of this whole story and, and restoring habitat for the benefit of caribou is, is also sort of tied into restoring treaty rights and restoring a relationship with the land. So I think that um, it, it would be so interesting to sort of do something from a very big perspective that was either nation-led or, or nation-knowledge-infused, kind of TK-infused, land-user perspective-infused uh, into some of these broader planning strategies that, that sort of go, go um, you know, incorporate... Um, universities and incorporate companies and, and governments and, and that, that sort of bigger tent approach. Um, so that a lot of potentially alternative ideas from a, from a company perspective or from a university perspective could immediately get put deeper into the fold so that um, folks that are doing all of the research and crunching the numbers can sort of also infuse those different perspectives and those different, um, kind of approaches to implementing restoration to sort of see how all that stuff works at, at a much bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. No, those so are, I sort those of topped out points. anyway, because I did give you two answers, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very much in parallel with uh, the episode I was talking about earlier with uh, Clayton Lamb and, and his work with um, the first nations that are running the maternal penning project uh, in Northeastern BC and having some, amazing success growing caribou herds by bringing the pregnant cows in looking after them feeding them and then then turning turning them loose um you know when the calves have got uh you know growing up and able to move a bit better so and that's that's totally a first nations led 
uh, conservation project that they're dedicated to 24 hours a day when those when those caribou are in there so you know this was a this was a huge uh, episode for us in this like I said the caribou picture another piece of the puzzle and um, I, I really commend the work that you guys are doing in this field and I don't know whether you feel this frustration or not I think some of the things we feel is when we talk about caribou recovery uh, in Canada uh, there's always just two things that come up it's it's one they're logging caribou habitat you know like we just we keep hearing that there's a there's a focus on that and the controversy around aerial wolf control and one of the things I loved about having you guys on is we're talking about something else that's not those two things that's happening on the ground and trying to recover endangered caribou in the boreal forest of Western Canada that just never seems to be talked about, acknowledged, thanked, or even on the front page of the, of the news. So uh, maybe this coming winter we'll see a picture of uh, Mel out there and Jesse with his excavator plunking some some mounds of uh, trees on on an island and a bunch of frustrated wolves <laughs> standing there looking at you guys going, ah, Jesus is going to take us so long to get over there. Uh, thanks so much, both of you, for coming on and and uh, painting this this great picture. It's a great it's a great example, and one of the things I loved about this is. You know, we talk a lot about science, you know, and the science that's being done. This was really excited because here's the science that's being transferred to people that are actually doing it on the ground and adjusting and learning, you know, from that and the feedback and the iterative uh, relationship between practitioners on the ground, Jesse and scientists like Mel. Uh, that's just a, that's just an amazing thing. I think we need more of that in this in this country. Curtis, take it away and wrap us up. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. We drove by there, was it Saturday, Sunday? And the old Toyota dealership was all cleared out. All the vehicles were out of there. Um, the new dealership had all the big lights out the front. It's uh, pretty spectacular. It's a happening place uh, there at the new dealership. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, if you're in Cranbrook or in the area, swing on in, have a look at the new dealership, um, pop in and say, hey, thanks for supporting the guys over at the Hunter Conservationist. We, uh, we really enjoy the, the show. Um, this also, I believe, is the September 1st podcast. Yep. Yeah. So as of the release date of this episode, hunting season is here. It's going. We're probably up in the wall tent right now. Hopefully, maybe skinning out an elk. I don't know. That'd be that'd be pretty sweet. Open in morning. Who knows? Who knows? Crazier things have happened. But uh, yeah, everybody, uh, count those tines. Double count those tines. Count those annuli. Make sure it's a legal six. Uh, eight-year-old full curl whatever you need and have a safe and successful hunting season cool thanks melanie jesse thanks for coming on the show and and uh look forward to having you back on in a few years when that opening story is 
this matriarch cow and her daughters and sisters and their their daughters and are coming out to the edge of a of a forest uh, and doing some feeding and there's 300 of them because <laughs> of the great work that you're doing so hopefully we learn through science that um, this work is beneficial we can fine-tune it and see the continued growth that we're seeing in some of these caribou herds that people are dedicating a lot of um, on the ground work to recovering in, in Western Canada. So thank you both for trying to save this iconic species in Canada. Fingers crossed. I hope to talk to you again when we see those caribou. Yeah, no, for sure. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening in and uh, we will see you in the next episode. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.